All right, I think we're gonna go ahead and get started. Uh, my name is Ben Snively. I'm a specialist solutions architect at AWS. Uh, I focus on the data and analytics services as well as the AI and ML services. Uh, in today's session, we're gonna be covering uh, big data uh, best practices and, um, and how to structure the architecture when you're building big data and analytical systems. Uh, the way we're actually going to be stepping through this is we're going to be stepping through first framing uh, analytical systems by some common challenges and constraints. How are customers facing uh, these big data systems and uh, what are some common characteristics of those systems? We're going to step through a set of reference architectures and doing so we're going to map various tools, both AWS tools as well as open source tools to see where they fit into those reference architectures. Uh, we have a couple demos throughout uh, to show uh, some real systems running. Uh, you know, they're all live demos, it's not recorded, so uh, we're gonna switch to some demos uh, throughout here. And then uh, finish out with a couple customer references. Uh, I should uh, let everyone know this is a, a 200 level session, meaning uh, we're gonna talk a lot about reference architectures, we're gonna give a few demonstrations. We're not gonna dive uh, 400 level deep on any single service like Kinesis or EMR or Redshift. Uh, we have separate sessions for that, uh, but this is meant to be an overview of the different types of architectures and where the services fit into those architectures. And uh, as we get started here, it's really good to frame uh, not uh, every big data system is the same, so there's not a single one-size-fits-all for uh, these analytical systems. Uh, what we find is there's really different types of systems, so some customers are looking at doing batch and interactive uh, uh, analytics with their data. Uh, other customers are looking at being able to take real-time data feeds and being able to not only ingest that data and store it in a, a repository, but also be able to drive insights in real-time and take actions on those insights. And then, of course, being able to take data, build models, power inferencing, and do machine learning with that data. So as we're stepping through these reference architectures, we're gonna show architectures for stream processing, for data lakes and batch interaction, for machine learning, and I should note that not, you don't have to pick one of these. These aren't mutually exclusive. So you don't have to boil the ocean. You don't have to say, I want to do stream processing instead of batch or interactive processing. You could start small, uh, architect it in a way to start building on top of those, and then uh, you know, incrementally add to the capability as, uh, as you're building it. It's really good to be able to frame uh, these services when it comes to how the delivery model is. Uh, so, most people in the room are probably uh, familiar with virtualized servers, EC2. Uh, so when customers are running things like Kafka, and we'll talk about what this is, uh, on EC2, that's a virtualized service, uh, meaning you as a customer would manage the Kafka and uh, all the uh, other uh, components above the OS. Uh, we have services that fit into the managed category. Uh, so things like EMR, which is our Hadoop platform as a service. Uh, things like RDS. Uh, these services, you don't necessarily have to manage the servers yourself. Uh, we'll do that on your behalf. So you can set up a Hadoop cluster, uh, tell us you want it to be 10 nodes, scale to 100 nodes, scale back down to 50. Uh, and you can configure all this, but you as a customer are still thinking about servers. So you're still taking a look at what you need, uh, setting up the auto scaling policies and saying, I want this number of servers, here's how I want to scale it. When we look at serverless or clusterless, uh, things like Lambda, Athena, Glue, uh, these are services that really abstract out the servers uh, away from you. Uh, we're going to give a couple demonstrations of things like Athena, uh, where we're going to be performing SQL-based analytics on data. Even though we're going to be using SQL, 
we're not going to be actually storing the data in a relational database. So we're going to be querying the data under the covers that's using Presto, uh, which is part of the big data ecosystem. And what you do is you just issue the query. You don't have to worry about if it took 10 servers, 100 servers, whatever it took to actually execute that query. So the servers are completely abstracted away. You just write the code, you write the analytic that matters. And this is important when you're looking at the different types of tools out there. So as we're looking at these architectures, we're going to be looking at open source products. We're going to be looking at partner products and AWS services and fitting them into these architectures. And as, as we're fitting them into the architectures, it's good to analyze, you know, uh, does it make sense to roll your own on EC2? Does it make sense to use a managed service or a serverless service? So as we're stepping through here, we're going to be looking at what are the various reference architectures? Uh, what are the tools that uh, help me implement that reference architecture? You know, how, how would I put together those tools? We're going to give a couple demonstrations later on uh, towards the end uh, of this. And really, why am I putting these tools together specifically? And before we dive into that, it's really good to set some tenets, set some principles as we're looking at these best practices and architectures. Uh, this first tenet isn't exclusive to big data analytics. It's really building loosely coupled or decoupled systems. What that really means here in the big data space is the way I analyze my data shouldn't be dependent on the way I collect my data. Meaning, I could change the way I collect my data, the tool, maybe it's streaming, maybe it's uh, batch-oriented, uh, but I want to decouple the way I collect my data, the way I store my data, the way I process and consume the data. And that really lets you future-proof, that lets you iterate and build a system that lets you really uh, migrate it over time. And we'll, we'll take a look at a couple of those examples. And if you have that loose coupling, uh, another one of the um, tenets is being able to pick the right tool for the right job. Uh, so rather than trying to pick one tool that does absolutely everything, uh, if you have streaming data and you need to do real-time analytics, maybe you'll use something like a, a Spark Streaming or a Kinesis Analytics or a Flink to be able to do that. Uh, if you really want to be able to do machine learning or deep learning, you're going to use different libraries like MXNet or TensorFlow or uh, one of those tools to be able to do that. So um, the key is being able to architect it so that the data stays in one spot. You have a logical data model or a data set of that data and are able to use these various tools to be able to ingest and process that data. Um, this isn't really an architectural tenant, but really uh, lets you have speed and agility. Uh, but anytime you can leverage those managed services or serverless services, it really lets you focus on what matters. Uh, it lets you focus on the analytic, the transformation, the ETL, uh, and rather than uh, loading software and those other pieces. So this is a really good aspect it's not really an architecture, so you could swap out, you know, for example, a Kafka to a Kinesis data streams, depending on how you're architecting it. Uh, but it's really a good principle that uh, we work with customers on. Uh, event journaling, uh, what this means is, as you're collecting your data in these big data systems, it's really, really good best practice to not overwrite your data. So if you're getting data records, and some of those data records are getting corrected, rather than replacing those records, keep appending to your data set keep adding to that data set. Uh, and what happens in these big data systems and why that is, is if you have large volumes of data and if there's ever an issue, uh, an error in your ETL process, if there's an issue on somebody accidentally going in and deleting something or something like that, you always have your source of record in its original form you could go back to and be able to then analyze and process and then rehydrate or regenerate your data sets. And we'll look at how that looks when it comes to data lakes and S3. Uh, we have a couple other sessions dedicated to data lakes, so we're not going to spend 
a lot of time on that, but we'll, we'll give a few examples. Uh, be cost conscious, cost conscious excuse me. Um, you know, a lot of times big data doesn't have to be big costs. If you architect it correctly, you know, let's say you're building a Hadoop system, if you're decoupling compute and storage and scaling those independently, you could build a very, very cost effective and performant system uh, and keep that cost down. And uh, lastly, uh, adding machine learning. Uh, this is definitely a, a rapid trend we see. Uh, more and more customers, as they're collecting the data, wants to be able to leverage application level services, platform services, these different services to be able to build their models. So as we're framing this, we're gonna frame it around this uh, uh, simplified data processing pipeline. Uh, and this is definitely not necessarily every pipeline we see, but it's good to be able to set context around some logical constructs here. So if you take a look at this, um, we separate out into collecting. How am I gonna capture and collect this information? And the key thing is, if I have different data sets, I may not wanna collect the same type of data or different data sets the same way. So if I have GPS data or clickstream data, I might wanna collect that very, very differently than I'm, if I'm collecting imagery or satellite data. So as we're stepping through these architectures, we'll, we'll categorize these services into what they're good at in these different phases, being able to collect, store, process, analyze, and consume the data. And you'll notice there's cycles here. You know, it's not necessarily a waterfall. You know, oftentimes you collect and store the raw data. Um, that raw data is oftentimes in the original form, so it might be CSV, JSON, whatever form it may be. Uh, then you, you oftentimes really want to be able to take that data and create curated data sets, uh, query optimized data sets to be able to very rapidly access that data. Uh, it could be through uh, interactive queries, through machine learning, through your data warehousing. Uh, so, you know, this is a really an iterative process once you collect the data, start getting it into a canonical or normalized form, and then ultimately consume it by different stakeholders. So as we're talking about this, oftentimes we talk about temperature, you know, high velocity uh, of your data, high velocity of your queries, high velocity of your analytics. Uh, and when we're stepping through this, we're going to be talking about uh, the temperature uh, across those, those spectrums. Uh, so let's go ahead and step through. I need to remember to stay behind here. Uh, so if you look at the collection phase, uh, so oftentimes you have different data sources. So you might have uh, records coming in uh, from transactional databases. You might have a relational database. You might have a Mongo or a different type of NoSQL database. And these oftentimes are records coming in that you need to be able to analyze and process. Um, and we could call those transactions. Similarly, you might have log data, application logs, uh, media files, these large file objects that you need to be able to store, and then streaming data. And the reason we like to show this a lot of times is each of those collection methods, uh, when we're helping customers architect their solution, oftentimes require a different way of collecting that data. Uh, so we're talking about things like uh, how to do streaming analytics and collect streaming data uh, versus how to um, collect data from a relational database, as an example. And when you're looking at being able to store this data, if we take a look at storing the data, uh, oftentimes transactional data goes into one form of a database. It might be a NoSQL database, it might be a relational database, uh, and we'll step through some of the trade criteria of that. Uh, media and log files, uh, really the de facto standard there is really S3. Um, if you're doing this on-premises, that would be similar to you know, doing something like HDFS with your Hadoop cluster where you want uh, a big file store or a big object store, a data lake, that sort of thing. And with stream storage, uh, it's really data streams coming into some sort of stream storage. And really what that means is 
different sets of tools you could use. Uh, so the first one is Apache Kafka. Uh, this is a open source project, uh, pretty well established. Uh, we have lots of customers going from hybrid solutions, hybrid architectures, or built these types of solutions on premises that are running Kafka today. And you can very easily bring that into AWS, run it on your EC2 instances, run it in a virtual, uh, virtual uh, hosting area uh, to be able to bring that uh, into AWS. You have Amazon Data Streams. So Data Streams is a little different where Data Streams is really uh, at the highest level. So when you define a data stream, what you define is a number of shards. Let's say you want to be able to uh, process 1,000 records per second. Um, that's a single shard. Uh, if you want to scale up to uh, 100,000 records, uh, you could very easily just change the shard numbers. You don't have to worry about is it taking 10 servers, 100 servers, how many servers under the covers across all the different availability zones to make it highly available to be able to do that. You just configure, based on the sharding, how much capacity you want out of that pipe. And what we did is we actually released that first out of the Kinesis platform. Uh, and then uh, we saw customers using that for a very, very common use case. What if I have streaming data, uh, IoT sensors, GPS, clickstream, any of that streaming data sources? And really what I want to do is instead of doing real-time insights, I want to capture that data and do some sort of advanced processing or offline processing of that data. And that's where Kinesis Data Firehose comes in. Uh, what that allows you to do is configure an endpoint uh, to be able to um, store the data. So you could configure things like S3 uh, if you're populating a data lake. If you want to populate a, uh, an ELK stack, you could configure Amazon Elasticsearch. Uh, you can configure these various uh, destinations to be able to store the data as the data is flowing in. Uh, and that is actually priced a little bit differently than things like Kinesis data streams. So in data streams, you actually configure a number of shards. With data firehose, it's purely based on the amount of data that's sent through that, that pipe. So you don't have to pre-provision. Uh, there's some soft limits uh, of records per second uh, within your account, so always take a look at those soft limits. Uh, but you don't have to actually pre-provision for 5,000 records all the way down to you know, 300 or whatever it may be. Uh, it's really billed per megabyte or per gigabyte sent through that pipe and then stored into your backend repository. So uh, we have a few of these throughout this presentation. Uh, don't worry, these are all gonna be on SlideShare as well. Uh, but um, here's some of the trade criteria of uh, what type of stream service to use. And one question I, li I like to ask a lot of times when customers are looking at things like, for example, SQS versus Kinesis. SQS is a really, really great service. It allows you to uh, have reliable queuing within AWS. Uh, but if you really need to be able to have a one-to-many fan out, if you have streaming real-time data that needs to be able to uh, be able to process and reprocess later on, uh, that's really where stream storage comes in uh, versus uh, have one consumer take a message off the queue, have a visibility timeout, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, so if we then shift over uh, and look at object storage now, uh, S3 is really the de facto standard uh, method of storing objects or storing files uh, out into the cloud here. Uh, and what it allows you to do is really build your data lake or build that object storage um, very, very robustly. And what I mean by that is you could very easily run lots of different analytics on, on S3. Uh, it's really natively supported by a wide number of tools, including the Hadoop ecosystem, uh, including our service called EMR, our Hadoop platform, but also our partner products, Cloudera, MapR, Hornworks. Uh, they're all able to talk to S3 natively to be able to, to read and, and process that data. 
Uh, we're actually going to give a couple demonstrations here in a moment, processing data directly out of S3 uh, through EMR, our managed Hadoop platform using SageMaker uh, uh, Jupyter environment to be able to show uh, a couple demonstrations. The other really powerful thing, and it's interesting, uh, I came from an uh, environment where before joining AWS about four years ago, I actually built a very a set of large uh, Hadoop clusters on-premises. And if you would have asked me before if you decoupled compute and storage, like back when Hadoop was coming out, you know, people would look at you like you're crazy because that was a whole premise of MapReduce, right? You wanted to bring the compute to the storage and be able to process that. Uh, what we're really finding is both through this evolution of these types of analytics, things like Spark uh, with the RDDs and the data frames, uh, Presto, these different types of analytics, as well as how it's architected to uh, be able to talk to S3, um, you could really very, very performantly decouple this, this compute to the storage and still run these Hadoop-based workloads uh, really, really effectively. Uh, we have customers like FINRA running very large HBases purely backed by S3. So they're not using HDFS for their, uh, for their uh, different log, log files and stuff like that for their HBase. They're talking directly to S3 uh, for all those artifacts. So you could architect it so that it's very, very performant. Um, we do have some edge cases working with customers where they want to cache that data, uh, be able to store that data locally. Uh, S3 oftentimes still becomes the source of record, and we have services like S3 Disk Copy. It's a library you could run to create caches of that data uh, on your cluster uh, to be able to have, if you really do have the repetitive reading off of disk over and over again, maybe it's an old pig or hive job uh, that is constantly running on that, on that data set. Uh, with S3, you get um, a crazy amount of number nines, 11 nines of durability. I think that means that if you store 10,000 objects, you might, might on average lose one in every like million years. Uh, so uh, tremendous data reliability. I'd never achieved that when I was building on-premises uh, Hadoop clusters. Uh, you also don't have to worry about data replication uh, within the region. So um, if you're actually building these systems, a lot of times you have to worry about replicas or copies of the data within, within the region. Uh, with S3, you don't have to worry about that. That's all handled under the covers. Uh, that's one of the reasons you achieve that, or we uh, achieve that durability number. Uh, it's very, very secure and uh, low cost. So let's talk a little bit about data tiering. Uh, so when it comes to data tiering, uh, we actually just uh, announced, uh, it doesn't have it on the slide, we actually just announced a new intelligence tiering. I don't know if you guys saw it today. Um, so, Imagine there's a line on this slide uh, that talks about that as well. Uh, but with data tiering, you could actually tier uh, your S3 storage based on different classes. So um, the very frequent data that you're always accessing uh, is usually in standard. Uh, you have infrequent access. You have Glacier. Um, we have a, a, a report you could run called the S3 Analytics Report that would tell you, uh, you know, which objects it recommends to be able to um, uh, shift between the, the storage tiers. I should mention, um, we do have customers still leveraging things like HDFS. When you launch a EMR cluster, which is that Hadoop managed platform, or when you launch one of our partner products um, running Hadoop on AWS, still, there's still HDFS, there's still scratch space. Um, you know, there's still that, that location to be able to have, uh, to be able to very rapidly read and write from. Uh, S3 just becomes that source of record that uh, is always referred back to. So we've talked a little bit about streaming. We've talked about um, object storage. Uh, we're going to dive a little bit more into databases and then give a few demonstrations of, uh, of these things here. So when it comes to databases, there's really a wide number of databases that are out there that you could use. 
Um, the top two really are caching, uh, caching services. Uh, so Elastic Cache allows you to do Redis or Memcached. We have DAX, which is really a DynamoDB front end uh, that has a write, write through cache uh, to be able to cache your DynamoDB. Um, Neptune, one of, my, one of my many favorite new services to be able to have property graphs or uh, RDF graphs and be able to do very, very rich uh, graph queries against, uh, against your data set. Uh, DynamoDB, which really allows you to store key values or JSON documents within it. And then uh, RDS, uh, both kind of uh, vanilla RDS that lets you run a wide number of different engines as well as Aurora. And you might ask, you know, which tool should I use? You know, if, um, if I'm building a system, should I use uh, a graph database or should I use a, a document storage or should I use a traditional RDBMS? Um, and really what we find here is, is really choosing the best tool for the, the, for the job. And the way we help customers choose that is through a set of questions. Uh, so if we take a look at some of the questions that we oftentimes ask customers, um, it really stems from things like, uh, what is your data structure? Uh, do I have a very fixed schema? Uh, am I doing key value lookups? So if, you know, a great example is if I'm storing tons of session data uh, and I want to store that in a Dynamo or a, a key value store, it's very, very easy to be able to store that and retrieve it based on the key. Uh, is it very, very relational data and I'm constantly traversing the graphs and doing different properties on that graph? So the data structure itself will help you very, very easily dictate uh, kind of what the right tool for the right job is. Uh, but also the data access pattern. I have a lot of discussions with customers on should I use Aurora or should I use Redshift? And really the way the data gets ingested and the way you're using that data will help you answer that uh, pretty quickly. If it's a very, very high throughput transactional uh, data need, then Aurora is a great option. If, it, if you really need that analytical capability, you really need a uh, OLAP rather than a, a transactional database, then that's where we see customers use Redshift. Uh, I'm, got click. Uh, I'm going to put the clicker down. Uh, so here's a, one, of my, one of my favorite uh, tables that I promise you guys will have a ton of throughout the session here. Uh, so within here, you know, I highlighted two different rows uh, just to call out. So if you're looking at these different options, uh, one of the key things is what's the use case? The use case, in my opinion, should really drive uh, the major decision here. Uh, if it's log data, you, know, you notice we'll call out Elasticsearch. If it's um, you know, OLTP, very transactional, something like Aurora. So the use case will really drive a lot of that, but also that shape of that data. What, what does that data look like uh, to, that's needed to get stored? The other thing I should mention is a lot of these services uh, either runs at the regional level or runs within your VPC. And when you're looking at architecting your solution, uh, it's good to be able to look at these services and say, uh, this service is really uh, one that runs in my AZ, for example, uh, or in my VPC, for example, RDS. RDS runs, uh, you know, you get an ENI, a network interface within your VPC. Uh, versus something like a DynamoDB. DynamoDB operates at the regional level. You don't have to worry about replicating that across AZs. We do that for you. Uh, you can set up endpoints uh, within your VPC. Um, but as you're looking at these options, it's good to, as you're architecting out and, and looking at that diagram, uh, which ones of the services run within the VPCs, uh, which ones have kind of the, the endpoints into that VPC. Uh, even things like S3, S3 happens, uh, S3 is a regional service. Uh, but that doesn't mean you can't lock it down. Uh, what I mean by that is you could create S3 buckets and say that this bucket is only accessible by this VPC. 
and nobody else could access the data within that bucket. So even if it's at a regional level, that doesn't mean it's not secure within your VPC. You still lock things down, uh, but it's good to be cognizant. That way you're asking the right questions uh, when, when you're uh, creating that architecture. So let's dive into the processing phase here. And if we take a look at the processing, uh, the first thing we'll look at is the interactive and batch processing. And really what we'll find here is um, things like Elasticsearch. Elasticsearch is really fantastic at that log data, the, the textual data. Uh, Redshift and Redshift Spectrum for your uh, really um, data warehousing needs. Uh, Athena, uh, one of my other favorite uh, relatively new services, not that new anymore, uh, where you could actually perform SQL-based querying against your data as it lies on S3. Uh, one of the differences between something like Athena and using uh, S3 Select, if you're familiar with that, is Athena is really operating at a logical data set level within the catalog of Glue, rather than doing a selecting of data uh, out of a particular object out of S3. So you could actually have a suite of objects that you're querying over, uh, do complex queries over uh, using something like Athena versus uh, another way of doing different types of gits. Uh, S3 Select, really fantastic, but that's one of the differences between Athena and, uh, and that. And of course, EMR, uh, it's really our Hadoop and Spark ecosystem as a service. Uh, lets you run various platforms, um, applications. You could actually bootstrap it to run a wide number of tools. It's, it's actually interesting. EMR is one of the services we offer that's really the managed service. You configure how many servers you want. We'll install the Hadoop. If one of the nodes goes down, we'll relaunch it, all that jazz. What's really interesting about it, though, is you actually have root access uh, to the EC2 instances that EMR is using. Most of our managed services, you actually don't have that access. Most of them, are, like things like RDS, you have a ENI endpoint that you could connect into. You could perform database functions, but you don't necessarily have SSH access into that service. EMR is different, where you actually have and you actually see the EC2 instances that that service is using uh, and launching and managing on your behalf. When it comes to real-time analytics, um, really if you're looking at the Hadoop ecosystem, uh, the number of services that do real-time analytics keeps growing. You have Spark Streaming, uh, Flink, you know, things like Storm uh, to be able to uh, run uh, real-time analytics. Uh, what's interesting is um, Kinesis Data Analytics allows you, it's very similar to how Athena uh, lets you query your, your data objects at REST and S3 using SQL, even though it's not a relational database. Uh, data analytics lets you perform SQL-based queries on your real-time data, even though it's not really in a database. So it lets you connect, um, write SQL, uh, things like tumbling windows, random cut forest, different sorts of uh, expressions to be able to analyze that data. Uh, it's really easy to write because most people know SQL. Uh, but then under the covers, it's going to be processing the data in real time off of your feed and then sending it somewhere else. Uh, one thing that I should mention, um, Sometimes I work with customers, and with real-time analytics, uh, it's a, a, a very valid question to ask, you know, what's my end-to-end -end latency from when I publish a message to when I start processing and then uh, get the final insights out? Um, and the tool that you use here might, uh, that's a really important question to ask as you're picking the tool that you're using. And let me give you a real example. So today, as it stands, uh, AWS Lambda is really fantastic. It lets you write your functions. You can set up an event trigger for Kinesis off of that. Uh, but what happens with that is it actually pulls every second uh, off of the event queue. 
What that means, if your end-to-end -end latency needs to be less than a second, you really shouldn't be using something like Lambda today because it's pulling every second. It could be uh, more than that. So that's where you'd use something like a KCL or another approach in, the, in those examples. So um, that's why there's these different services, uh, different ways of writing your analytics, different latency requirements uh, for those. And then uh, predictive analytics. Um, there's a lot of sessions and a lot of updated diagrams from the one that you see here um, that lets you uh, build different types of machine learning algorithms on, on the platform. And the key thing I wanted to point out here is when you're looking at the architecture of your data system, is really just making sure the data is easily consumable uh, using open standards. So um, it, it doesn't necessarily matter uh, if you're using Parquet versus RRC for a lot of these systems. As long as it's in an open standard, those are two column oriented formats, or if the data is in CSV versus JSON versus different formats. The key is really to have the data in a, in a form that's very easily consumable uh, and used by a lot of these different tools, uh, including the machine learning libraries. Uh, the platform, uh, for, for folks that aren't aware, at the very highest level, we have application services. Uh, these are really built to be able to consume by anyone. They're very, very simple API. So if I want to do a transcription of a, uh, of, a, uh, of a feed and I want to get the transcription of that, I could just do an API call, point it to my audio file, and get the transcription out. These are powered by machine learning and deep learning. They're always getting better over time. And it's really, really easy to empower my, my system with these intelligent uh, capabilities. And there's really a suite of these. Uh, and this number is constantly growing. Uh, and then at the lower level, we have things like SageMaker. This is really where a lot of the data scientists live, being able to build their own machine learning models, um, have a managed platform uh, such as the Jupyter environment to build those models, plug into the catalog, and be able to um, you know, run model endpoints, that sort of thing. So if we uh, take a look at here, uh, you'll notice uh, we kind of color-coded uh, you know, the real-time data is definitely the fastest. Uh, when we're looking at things like um, Elasticsearch, Athena, Presto, Spark, those are all very, very fast. Um, if you're really looking at uh, things like Hive and Pig, those were some of the original analytical tools out of the ecosystem that got developed. Uh, those tend to be a little bit slower. They're actually under the covers still running kind of old school MapReduce uh, to be able to run those analytics and then write the results out. So here's a couple of um, slides here. Um, these are going to be on SlideShare, so I'm going to skip over a couple of them. And then uh, uh, talk a little bit about ETL. And then after this slide, we're going to dive into the demonstration. So, uh, uh, so what, why do we want to do ETL? So one of the best practices is really to consume the data as it's coming in in the raw form, right? Because if you're transforming the data and there's everything, anything ever wrong, uh, it's really hard to recover from that, uh, along with other reasons. Um, so what we find, and this is a very, very well-established pattern from you know, folks like NASDAQ and Dow Jones and FINRA and lots of customers doing this pattern, uh, but the data is coming in in its raw form. Uh, what that means is it's coming in, and then oftentimes you want to create curated data sets or canonical data sets that represent uh, a normalized view of that data. Uh, and that's where the ETL or the ELT process comes in. Uh, and that normalized data set oftentimes is in a different format. So you might have different data sets coming in, one JSON, one CSV, and your output oftentimes will be something like a column-oriented format like Parquet or RC, or if you have constantly changing schemas, you might do something like Avro um, because it just handles changing those schemas a little bit better. Um, and that's actually the curated data sets that, that um, get consumed even farther downstream. 
So to show that, I think we'll uh, uh, go ahead and actually dive to a demonstration. Uh, what we're going to do in this demonstration is show some raw data uh, that we've brought in. Uh, and um, if we could uh, go ahead and switch over, uh, thank you. Um, so uh, what we have here is we actually have the Glue Data Catalog. And if we take a look here, uh, we're actually going to uh, look at this uh, database. And you can't see me uh, do my air quotes. This isn't a real database. Uh, this is really a logical grouping of data sets. Uh, and this is in my data catalog. I'll make that bigger uh, since this is uh, a nice big room. Um, so this is actually a logical grouping of data sets that I have that I want to be able to analyze. Uh, so if I actually take a look at that, those data sets here, uh, what you'll notice is some of these data sets are CSV and some of them are Parquet. And this is uh, the first data set we're going to start analyzing. Uh, and this came in the raw form. So this came from New York City Taxi Commission. It's uh, two gigs of data uh, that we're going to start analyzing. Um, and it's going to work really, really well. It's only two gigs of data. We're gonna, we don't need to transform it. It's going to be pretty performant. We're going to start analyzing it. Uh, so to do that, uh, what we could do is we could actually go back over here. And right now we're in the Glue Data Catalog. And we can actually go over here and say, I want to view the data. And what this is doing is this is shifting to Athena. And you'll notice uh, we're actually issuing select statements as if it's uh, in a relational database, even though it's not. So uh, the data is still at rest on S3. Oops, I might have to zoom out a little bit. Uh, the data is still at rest on S3. We can start looking at the data and start querying the data here. And I happen to be using Athena here, but you could actually use Hadoop. You could plug this into the SageMaker and start doing machine learning models. Uh, I could start doing a wide number of analytics on this data. Uh, you know, this is actually doing just a select uh, limit 10. That's, you know, kind of quite frankly pretty boring. You'll notice it only scanned uh, uh, two megabytes. That's actually because I actually was limiting the query by doing that limit 10. If I actually do a count here in the average trip distance, uh, this is one month of data. Uh, you'll notice it's about 140 million records, 14 million records. Um, so we just queried over 14 million records in four seconds. Um, pretty interactive, right? Being able to start looking at this data, uh, analyzing it, see what are the outliers, uh, do some data cleaning, that sort of thing. What, what gets interesting is uh, instead of one month of data, what if I brought the data set in and it, uh, instead, I, I brought in about um, eight years of data instead. Uh, so I'm going to actually query that data set next. Oops. Okay. And uh, this is going to take a little bit more time. So we're actually limiting it to 2016 and 15 in the query, you'll notice. Uh, but because the data is actually structured here, we just took the raw data, we loaded it in S3. Uh, we didn't do much with the data. We just loaded it in, and we're starting to query it. Uh, if we take a look at this data, uh, what, it, what it has is each file is actually a month of data. Uh, each file is about 2.4 gigs. Uh, and what this is doing is this is actually scanning over all this data. Uh, it's not using like the file name, uh, you know, doing like a regex underscore and only looking for those years. It's scanning over all the data, finding those two years of data, um, and aggregating those results back to me. And let's see if that was the right timing for stalling. Uh, whew, it was. Uh, 28 seconds it took to query that data uh, and get a result back. So, you know, it's, it's doable. Like, if I needed to do a couple queries and I'm, I'm fine waiting 30 seconds, 
Uh, but this, if this is a system powering data scientists, data engineers, maybe an application, you, you can't really be responding within 30 seconds here. And this is where we start going through that ETL process. So can we structure the data in a better way so it's much easier and more cost effective to query this data? You'll notice uh, under the data scanned, it says 207 gigs. Uh, what that means is it cost me about a dollar to do this query just now uh, to be able to scan over it because what's happening is it's scanning over the entire data set. And if I would have done really any query here, it's still going to say 207 gigs because it's always scanning over the entire data set. What I could do, though, is I could actually structure the data a lot better. If I actually structured the data so that each prefix on my S3 location was split out by year, you'll notice I'm actually querying a slightly, it's a very similar query. I'm just querying a slightly different table here. And if I, if I type it in right, if I actually now uh, query this, what's going to happen is um, it's actually going to do partition elimination. So the way this data is actually stored on S3 now, just, just to show everyone, is if we actually go back over here now and look at the partition data set and this data, you'll notice that in S3, there's actually a prefix where it says year is equal to 2009, year is equal to 2010. And each of those prefixes or directories, it's object storage, not file system, but directories, um, when I do that query, I don't need to be cognizant that the data is stored in here. I just do my query saying year is one of these two. And the systems, uh, if it's Athena, if it's uh, you know, Redshift Spectrum, if it's EMR, automatically knows how that data is stored through the catalog and is able to query that data. Uh, so over here, you'll notice uh, this took 15 seconds to run now. Uh, so about half the time, it scanned nine uh, gigabytes. So that cost me about four and a half cents. So uh, same query. Uh, before it cost me a dollar, now it cost me four and a half cents. Uh, what I could also do, though, is I, if I actually structure the data as parquet, um, so uh, parquet is a column-oriented storage. Uh, what that means is rather than storing rows of data together, it actually stores column blocks together. And the reason why that's more performant is a lot of these queries isn't actually, aren't actually pulling a single row out uh, for like a database would uh, if it's like a transactional database. What it's doing is it's aggregating over a lot of different data sets. It's doing group buys over different columns, and it's doing a subset of, of the columns. And by storing it column-oriented, you'll actually notice uh, uh, usually a very, very order magnitude performance difference here. Uh, so if I actually run this query now, uh, you'll actually notice a couple things. It's actually going to return in four seconds now. Uh, none of this is pre-staged. It's all kind of live hitting uh, US East, you'll notice. Um, it returned in four seconds. The other thing you'll notice, same exact data set, just structured differently on S3. It actually scanned over 349 megabytes. So that literally cost me uh, less than a tenth, about a tenth of a cent to just do. So we just went from a dollar to a tenth of a cent just by structuring the data slightly different on S3. And that's why, uh, if we actually switch back to the presentation now, uh, that's uh, actually why uh, we go through this ETL process and create these curated data set. It not only increases the performance for all the analytics we happen to be using Athena here to be able to consume that data, but also decreases our costs and really makes the system more performant overall. And then all those old files that we have out there, you know, if this was if this is a system that. Um, was used in production, I could actually archive all those old CSVs to Glacier. I have them if I ever need to rehydrate them. And then all the users would actually be querying that parquet part partition data sets to be able to analyze their data.
We have more cool demos, I promise. Uh, in 20 minutes, we'll see if I get there. Uh, so. Here's a, some of the different trade uh, of which e ELT, ETL tool to use in different scenarios. Um, really, Glue is fantastic if you have uh, um, data lake uh, requirements, if you're uh, querying external data sources, moving large data sets. Uh, we have data pipeline uh, that uh, many of our customers are still using. Uh, a lot of questions I get is, get a lot of times is, should I use something like DMS uh, with schema conversion tool, or should I use something like Glue if I have a relational database? Um, and a lot of times that, that, that becomes a question on how much data is getting transformed, how much um, uh, manipulation of the data has to happen, and also over time how you want to populate the, the destination. So things like Glue are really fantastic. You could take the data set, you could create you know, different uh, fused data sets and store it back to a Redshift or one of those data, uh, data repositories. Uh, but if you need to do CDC, uh, change data capture, uh, things like DMS or one of our partner products is really where those shine. Um, Glue today uh, doesn't actually do something like a change detection. You're issuing queries and you could do your own where clause, but it's not doing the, the binary logs of the change detection like a lot of the uh, partner products and DMSs. So going, uh, going a little bit to the consumption model now. Um, you know, I get asked sometimes, you know, what type of BI or what type of uh, UI should I use uh, in this type of solution? Um, and uh, what we find is really depending on what the user is and what function that they want to perform, um, oftentimes they'll use different tools. So uh, if you tried to put a business user in front of a Jupyter notebook, um, I'd hate to see what happens there. And likewise, if you actually put a data scientist in front of like some whiz bang dashboard and didn't give them access to the data, um, that would actually probably be just as bad. So um, in these solutions, you'll actually find a suite of different UIs being used to be able to perform these uh, analytics. Uh, so Jupyter is used quite a bit uh, within the data science space. Um, there's really two common patterns that we have customers uh, use Jupyter today. Uh, SageMaker, which we're going to demo here in a moment, uh, allows you to have a managed Jupyter environment uh, running both Jupyter as well as JupyterLab, uh, which we're going to uh, show in a moment. Uh, you could also run managed Jupyter or managed notebooks uh, right now on EMR. So if you're really just looking at the Hadoop ecosystem, um, we actually launched a feature where, uh, within EMR, our managed Hadoop platform. You could also uh, run those notebooks. Uh, of course, there's like the Alk stack and Kibana uh, to be able to do log analysis. Um, you know, we have partner products like Splunk and Tableau and MicroStrategy. And um, sorry if there's any partners in the room that I missed you, but a wide number of different partner products to be able to uh, perform that capability. So for uh, putting all this together, um, I know it's an eye chart, uh, but uh, we kind of have this data flow where you have the various data sources flowing in, uh, different repositories based on the requirements that are uh, needed to store that data. Um, one of the key callouts I'll make um, that wasn't on the previous diagram is that ETL process. How can I take my data, uh, create it in the most consumable method uh, for different types of users to be able to process and analyze that data? Uh, and then ultimately uh, getting it uh, in, you know, to drive insights, to, uh, to be able uh, to answer business questions, that sort of thing. So we're going to step through some design patterns now. Uh, and kind of shifting back to that data temperature. Uh, and if we take a look at that data temperature, uh, you know, we actually have real-time data. So over on the left-hand side, things like Kinesis, 
we have um, databases, transactional databases, and all the way to data lakes, cold storage, that sort of thing. If we take a look at the streaming uh, versus interactive versus batch, uh, what we have is we actually have streaming analytics done off of a streaming data source. I'd just like to show this because it's, it's intuitive when you say it, but it's nice, um, you know, oftentimes it takes saying it, where um, you have streaming analytics uh, obviously off of a streaming source. You wouldn't necessarily do streaming analytics off of S3 per se. Um, what, what you have is you could actually have interactive analytics off of a lot of these data sources. Uh, if you have a streaming data source and you want to really perform interactive analytics, uh, the most common practice is to actually um, take the Kinesis stream or take the stream, uh, pipe the data to S3, and then using the suite of different tools that you have available to you to be able to process that data once it hits S3. And we'll talk about a couple customers uh, in a moment that are doing exactly that. And then finally, uh, kind of the batch processing that might be using Hive, it might be using AWS Batch, um, that sort of uh, technology. So let's step through uh, kind of examples of all these. Uh, so data streaming in, uh, very often you want to be able to run real-time analytics on that data. Uh, so you could use Kinesis Data Analytics. Uh, you could use the KCL, the Lam uh, Lambda, uh, EMR, uh, with Spark streaming, those sorts of things. Uh, from there, you might want to be able to run real-time predictions on that data, uh, maybe through like a SageMaker endpoint. Uh, SageMaker endpoints allow you to build these models, have an endpoint that these services could call, and then uh, once you actually call that endpoint, if, the, if it's outside certain thresholds, um, you could actually then alert uh, uh, based on certain no notifications, uh, send that, uh, all that data to S3, and then finally create these materialized views or app states. Uh, and this is... Uh, uh, an area where if you have a need to be able to create uh, KPIs, performance indicators, um, this app state is really uh, one of the core kind of architectural components I see a lot of customers use where it might be a caching like a Redis uh, or a memcache or it might be Dynamo. We'll actually show an example of a customer using DynamoDB uh, with API Gateway uh, with a real-time flow here in a moment. Actually, we'll do that next here. <clears throat> uh, so the first of two examples that we're going to run through, these are real customer examples, is Hearst. Uh, they're a media and uh, information company. Uh, they have a wide number of different channels. They have magazines, newspapers, uh, things like ESPN, a and &E, um, lots of different channels out there under the Hearst umbrella. Um, and this is actually a real flow that they have. So they have uh, various uh, uh, information coming from their websites going through Kinesis data streams. Uh, once it hits data streams, then, uh, since it's a stream, you could have multiple consumers, right? One of those consumers could store my data out back into a data lake or a data repository. And then another consumer could actually build a real-time dashboard or build a real-time analysis of that data. And this is exactly what they're doing. So the data is actually flowing to a fire hose, which is storing the data to S3, which then you could really use any of these tools on. And then another uh, uh, consumer is going through a Lambda pipeline, hitting DynamoDB to be able to store that app state or store that um, uh, analysis state which is exposed through an API gateway, which allows you to have a RESTful endpoint uh, defined through Swagger um, uh, to be able to uh, get, get the current state of that data. Another example that we're gonna step through is actually Yieldmo. Uh, this is, uh, there have thousands of devices out there uh, that, uh, mobile devices, that is getting sent through a, a data stream. Uh, what they're running is data analytics now. So in the first example, through Hearst, they're using Lambda. What that means is their developers wrote function codes, uh, little functions, uh, to be able to process the data, the real-time data, and then store the data into a Dynamo table. 
In this example, what, uh, what this customer is doing is actually writing SQL now to be able to run the same sort of processing on the real-time feeds that they have and then do aggregations, do filtering on that data to then store it out into their data warehouse uh, through a fire hose and an S3 channel there. So I'd just like to show kind of two real examples as we're stepping through these, these architectures here. Through uh, the batch analytics and interactive analytics, you still might have streaming data coming in. Uh, so just because I have clickstream data, I might want to start analyzing the data interactively on what certain users are doing, what different profiles of users are doing, that sort of thing. Uh, I also might have other data sources coming in S3 uh, on a wide variety of methods. It might be through Snowball, it might be through S3 accelerated transfer, uh, different data sets coming in uh, at S3. I might want to integrate different data sets from organizations that uh, might be within my company or different companies. Uh, we have a lot of data sharing happening on S3 through things like uh, an open data program, a public data set. So uh, there's Landsat data out there, there's genomics data, lots of different data sets being shared through S3 and then analyzed downstream uh, by a wide number of different companies. Uh, obviously, you can completely lock down the data uh, uh, within S3 as well. So as soon as the data is coming in, uh, the streaming data could actually get flow, uh, flown, uh, flows through uh, S3, but also could get loaded into a Redshift or Elasticsearch. Uh, but also for the processing, you could use Athena, you could use, uh, which we actually just demonstrated, uh, you could use EMR uh, to be able to do that interactive processing. Uh, for the batch processing, we actually see Spark used quite a bit now for batch processing. It actually used to be Hive and Pig, where the predominant uh, uh, languages used a lot of times. Uh, we're seeing more and more Spark used for the ETL and the batch processing as well. And that really kind of um, is tied together through the machine learning. And that is what makes up that interactive layer as well as the batch layer that we see. To show an example here, uh, FINRA, uh, they ingest um, sometimes about 75 billion events every day. Uh, what they're doing is they're actually taking uh, stock information, financial trade information, and wants to, what they're, uh, really looking at doing is being able to find things like market manipulators or other uh, anomalous behavior on the stock markets. So what they have is they have all this data flowing into S3. They actually have that um, uh, canonical data issue, so they actually have different brokerage forms reporting data in different formats. Uh, it goes in the raw form, it gets into a canonical form, and then they're using a wide number of different EMR clusters as well as Redshift clusters to be able to process this data. And the reason I want to show this is um, just showing the flexibility uh, of as you're architecting your solution, storing the data in a, a format that is easily consumed by not only multiple types of the same service, like multiple EMR clusters, but also consumed by your data warehouse, by your uh, uh, data lake analytics, by your machine learnings, that sort of thing. So if we uh, uh, take a look uh, at the data lake architectures, and there's some really good sessions on data lakes uh, uh, throughout the conference here, so definitely recommend um, those sessions if you're looking at building a data lake. Um, but really, it's tying in the real-time processing, uh, the interactive and batch processing. You'll notice S3 is really the center uh, of the lake here, uh, but uh, another really important aspect of the data lake is really metadata management. Uh, sometimes when I talk about data lakes to customers, uh, when they ask, Ask them, you know, what are you doing for metadata, for the governance, for the providence, those sorts of things. Um, it's really good to have answers for that. So um, the data in S3 is a really, really good start, but also having a, a common data language, a common metadata store, so you can use all these different tools to be able to process your data. 
So I think next what we'll do is we're actually going to shift over uh, to another demonstration here showing uh, the flexibility of how to uh, use these different tools. Uh, we're actually going to be leveraging the same uh, um, data set that we were just querying. Uh, so if we could uh, go ahead and uh, shift over, thank you, uh, to the laptop, what we're going to show here is uh, this data set that we're just querying over. Uh, what if I actually wanted to take this data set and do things like extend my data warehouse into this data set? start doing machine learning in this data set to show the flexibility, right? Show the future proofing. I started with a very small use case analyzing the data, but I want to add on top of this. So what we're going to do here is we're actually going to uh, uh, launch into this Redshift cluster. Uh, so I have this Redshift cluster currently running here. And what we're going to show here is I'm going to actually connect into the Redshift cluster and uh, show you guys uh, the screen here. Uh, so I actually just connected into this cluster. And I'll make it a lot bigger for folks. Um, I happen to be using uh, PSQL here, uh, but really I could be using a BI tool or another type of SQL tool, uh, DB Visualizer, SQL Workbench, that sort of thing. And what you'll notice here in my data, uh, in my data warehouse is I have my, my tables here, but I also have uh, no other schemas defined. So I just have my, my one table defined here. What I'm going to do here is I'm actually going to define, uh, so this is leveraging Redshift Spectrum now. So at first we were demoing with Athena. Uh, now we're actually doing some stuff with Redshift Spectrum. Uh, and I'm actually going to create the schema. And if we actually take a look now, uh, we actually see the schema that we just created. And the nice thing about this now is I, I, I could actually query the same data that I was just querying. Uh, so if we actually take a look at these data sets, you know, it probably looks familiar. We're just querying the, the yellow, single yellow, yellow partition. I could actually take this data and use my BI tools to start querying this data. Not only that, I could also fuse the data with data that's already in, in the data warehouse with data that's in the data lake using Redshift Spectrum. So some really good patterns there to be able to start extending that data um, across the different lakes in the warehouses. Uh, but what we could do is uh, taking that same exact data set, uh, we could also have this uh, EMR cluster. So I actually launched this EMR cluster. Um, I launched it with Hue, Zeppelin. Um, I have different web interfaces into this. So I could use this cluster. I could run my jobs, hit that same data repository. Uh, the reason I know that is I could actually go over uh, to the configurations of this cluster. And you'll notice a couple things. One is I actually told it to optimize it for Spark. This is really good to do if you're using EMR and you're just using Spark. Definitely set this configuration. It, it sets the, the properties for Spark to uh, use the full memory and, and the different settings out of Yarn. Uh, but it, you'll also notice uh, it's using the Glue Data Catalog here uh, for things like Hive uh, and Spark Hive. Uh, but what I could do now is I'm actually, instead of running things directly on that cluster, uh, I'm actually going to launch into SageMaker now. And we're going to uh, go into SageMaker. And we're going to go into a Jupyter Notebook. And within this notebook, what we're going to do is we're actually going to start querying that same exact data sets that we had. Uh, so because it's in an open format, uh, it's in CSV, Parquet, these different formats, I can actually go in here and start analyzing this data. Uh, so what I'm going to show here first is, um, is you know, within here, uh, I can actually re-execute these cells. Um, you know, I can actually query this data set. You'll notice this is actually the same data catalog. So that metadata management is really, really key on this. Uh, how am I cataloging my data? 
Uh, so in here, I could actually query uh, my different data sets. I could actually uh, go in here and start uh, bringing this into a pandas data frame now. So I actually just, uh, through the EMR cluster, uh, through Spark, I queried, uh, uh, earlier I actually queried all the uh, taxi data, and then through uh, the Livy integration, I actually brought it into a panda data frame, and over here I could actually do all types of different pandas things within uh, the Spark, or within the SageMaker environment now, or really the Jupyter environment that SageMaker is providing. Uh, not only that is, um, if I actually want to build my own model, maybe I want to build an XGBoost uh, model to be able to, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, do a regression or something like that here. Uh, what I could do here is through the Jupyter environment, I could actually trigger this, uh, this job to run. You'll notice I'm actually specifying different node types. So definitely if you're looking at doing machine learning, attend some sessions on SageMaker. It lets you uh, run these Jupyter environments that have uh, very low footprint and then spin up these training jobs that could be very, very large and uh, auto scale up and down uh, or really scale up based on your definition. Um, so uh, what I just did though, through that SageMaker uh, Jupyter environment, hitting that Livy server, I actually just triggered the SageMaker job. So if I actually go over to the training jobs now, uh, what we'll see is we actually just triggered this training job all through the integration of, of the platform. Uh, and we happen to be using AWS products now. Um, you know, I could be using uh, other partner products on, on some of these. I could have actually shown a Tableau or a JasperSoft MicroStrategy, one of the BI tools in front of the Redshift rather than the PSQL. Uh, so there's a lot of nice integration through the partner ecosystem as well. Uh, so um, if we could actually switch back uh, to the presentation. Uh, we're going to wrap up here uh, with like two minutes to spare. Uh, it's kind of how we roll. Uh, so just to wrap up, you know, as you're building these systems, building that decoupled architecture, um, the way I'm ingesting data or the way customers are ingesting data versus storing it versus uh, analyzing it, really good to decouple all those different steps so that you can use these different tools. You can swap out uh, the best tool for the best job. Um, also, leveraging managed services, uh, serverless options uh, really lets you focus on what matters. Um, and I will highlight um, the cost-conscious aspect. Um, if you're actually pricing out an architecture and it becomes uh, a very, very large cost, uh, uh, usually the way we price our services are based on the, the way that that service is intended to be used. Uh, so, you know, for example, if I actually try to write out a lot of really small files to S3, and I cost that out, the put costs for S3 actually go very, very, very high, rather than using something like a Firehose or like a DynamoDB, which is meant for that very, very high throughput, uh, low um, uh, payload uh, write, uh, write type of architecture. So just go through that pricing exercise, get involved with your AWS teams to help you with that exercise, uh, and that really helps validate that architecture. So definitely uh, want to thank everyone for their time. Uh, please remember to fill out your reviews uh, and you know, hope everyone uh, enjoys the rest of the day in the conference. <laughs>